0: Welcome to the Queer Arads Podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we have a repeat guest from 2018. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming back on. I can't believe how long it's been.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Can you just kind of reintroduce yourself to the listeners, for anyone?
2: Who's not an original listener and who hasn't been here from the beginning. For the (laughs) non-OGs. For the posers.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, people who just like passively listen to podcasts and haven't, you know, written down the guests of the past 180 episodes at this point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Hi. um, uh, My name is Caitlin Abadir Malali or KT. I'm an artist uh, based in Philadelphia, also studying to be an archivist. Yeah. Back in 2018, I think it was October, it was like episode 30 something. Yeah. It's when I met y'all for the first time and I was. So excited uh, to really find a queer Swana community, um, queer Arab community. Uh, I am mixed race, I'm Coptic, Egyptian and Irish um, from New Jersey. (laughs) Yeah, I am working on some stuff I'm really excited about. Um, I'm excited to share that with all of you.
0: So last time we had you on, you were still in LA. Uh, Do you wanna talk about like, what made you decide to do the transition, make the
1: transition to Philly? L.A. is wonderful. Um, Lots of traffic and expensive rent. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And Philadelphia has uh, a really wonderful kind of like art scene and music scene. Um, And my girlfriend and I were just like wanting to get out of L.A. We moved cross country during the pandemic. We moved to Philadelphia in um, July of 2020. So we like Packed up my girlfriend's 2001 Nissan Pathfinder truck full of all of our crap and like drove across the country. Um, it was awesome and like kind of scary. Uh, and yeah, it, it was really wild. And we moved to Philly. Then we got a giant pit bull, you know, really embracing that Philadelphia lifestyle. And yeah, have been living here for a year and a half. Um, so I guess like, yeah. My family's from Jersey or they live in Jersey. <laughs> and so they were like, what the hell are you doing in Los Angeles? Why are you so far away? Um, and so it took like five years of them being like, why did you move <laughs> to uh, for me to realize that I wanted to be kind of closer to home. And I had I have some older family members who like immigrated here. Uh, so I wanted to be around for like their last you know a few months
0: yeah um i know it's probably hard transitioning to a new city during the pan- the pandemic but yeah it sounds like you've been like finding a lot um to do and like we are really excited to read about one of your projects that you're working on um right now right the grief houses
1: yeah yeah it's yeah.
3: so could you just could you describe the work for us?
1: Yeah, for sure. My current series is called uh, titled "Grief Houses." It it deals with like grief in like various areas of my life and in different parts of my identity. And I kind of think of it think of it in like three sections. Uh, like one section is based on like the street that my father grew up on, Riverdale Ave in Detroit, Michigan. I remember going there in like 2003 um, when a relative had passed, and like driving down that street. My father tried to show us like the house he grew up in and then seeing that it was just a plot of grass and like my family explaining to us that uh, in the neighborhood that they grew up in that in order to prevent like drugs and squatters and like I don't know, just like whatever crime entering a neighborhood, they would like burn down the houses when families moved out, which I think it's very specific to Detroit and to like classism and racism and like housing crisis in Detroit, um, but I also think it's I don't know, like just like interesting to see like how communities decide to like take care of themselves and like how like these decisions are made often by mothers to like protect their kids in the ways that they knew that they could and um, my aunt would tell me how it would be like this mother's telling their teenage sons to like light these houses on fire. Um, and then they would call the fire department, and because of lack of, like, kind of, like, institutional, (laughs) just, like, care and structure, like, the whatever fire department wouldn't come till hours later, and, like, so they, like, kind of measured out that time frame so that these houses would burn down and be kind of, like, uninhabitable so that, like, um, yeah, people who, I don't guess, like, drugs wouldn't enter the neighborhood, so uh, I went to Michigan in March of this year. Um, Yeah, we drove there to See some, see some artwork, and drove through different neighborhoods that my father grew up in. Yeah, I don't know, Michigan is really, really interesting. I'm <laughs> um, yeah, Detroit in particular has, like, a really uh, strong Arab community, um, which I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who are from Michigan or doing some sort of work in Michigan, and my father, he's the white one, he's Irish-American. I think it's interesting that he grew up in, like, this like kind of swana hub of the united states as an irish person and decided to like marry a coptic woman when he met her like in new york and how like who he grew up with and who kind of like also influences like who you see as like beautiful and what your attraction is because my other my irish aunt also married like a persian man so i think that's so i have like cousins who are like the same kind of mixture and i'm like does this have to do with Detroit, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so I could go on. But that's like one section of these like houses that um, kind of have been burnt down. I'm paralleling that with how um, tomb desecration and uh, in Egypt. It's very complicated. I feel like I have different opinions than like most Egyptians on like, I truly don't believe that anything should be taken out of the ground, even though it's like running an economy. I think that like bodies, you know, are still people and they deserve to like rest and i think that this kind of economy built around this like desecration of bodies and like disregard of ritual and disregard of like religious practices is like really disgusting yeah i got a chokehold on all of egypt and egyptians i have this um screen print of recent <laughs> tomb reveal when like 80 sarcophaguses like were raised from the ground um and it was like during the pandemic that like they were opening the coffins essentially and like like just like out in the open people like or like showing these bodies to people and they were like huddled around wearing their masks and um just like kind of on top of each other looking at this body it was like makes my blood boil for many reasons it feels like pretty disgusting to do that like during a pandemic also to still just like this disregard of, of body and like of this person, um, like regardless of like whatever power they hold <laughs> held during their lifetime, that gave them the privilege to like be buried in that way. Like, I think that this happens to a lot of like bodies of people of color is that they're like considered artifacts and not human especially like for the western gaze, and like if you look at egypt you know they just like really like market themselves to the western world you know they had this like movement of the mummies to like the new um egyptian museum of like maybe almost a year ago with this whole like golden parade i don't know if you guys heard about that Mm -hmm. um but they really just like makes a spectacle of like of burial i think about like grief in these different ways and like how this destruction of homes for safety is still like destroying something um, or like the kind of like self cannibalizing which Egyptians are also doing to like their own culture. And so then finally I have like these plaster casts of my body and can kind of like really thinking about how like my body is holding like these different kinds of like respect and disrespect um, and like desecration. Yeah, and the piece in this kind of like thinking about grief this way has a lot to do with the family member who just passed. my my grandmother Nelly, <laughs> uh or Teta whatever yeah she passed in October and that's when I really started to like dive into this piece more I'm thinking about grief in like various areas of my life basically part one of my work is about <laughs> um and it's a series it's a lot of um paintings on wood and screen prints and plaster casts and like prints on fabric
3: oh, beautiful. Befo- Go ahead, so sorry. before we started recording um I was looking over the the prints uh, she was doing, and the paintings, and I was like, one thing that struck me is with the houses, like, and discussing the, the sort of lost, like, history that was included in them, is like I felt like a lot of that parallels like my experience growing up in like Montrose before it was gentrified, like, all these all these homes that I visited and had like a lot of my formative queer experiences or a lot of these places is they're just gone now they were bulldozed you know for economic value and to put up like you know upscale apartments and taking up space and it kind of feels like a like a mix of both of the things we're discussing it's just like the loss of these spaces and the lack of respect for the culture that came before it you made a really interesting point about the it's like this was in your notes, but this is like, at one point, Europeans were literally consuming ground-up Egyptian mummies for medicinal benefits, and for pigments, and sometimes just for meat, like, straight up, and...
2: I didn't know that, actually. Me neither.
3: Like It was considered a delicacy at one point, ground-up mummy meat, and there was a whole, like, you know, apothecary subculture, where... they consider that they considered them very healthy because of some of the bombing um, stuff that was used on them. So,
2: what the fuck? That's so many levels of disgusting at the same time.
3: Yeah. Oh, um, and that Egyptian mummies were also ground up and used for pigments and paintings. So, oh,
0: wow. It's like even yeah. after death, people are still
3: violated. Yeah, this was, if I remember right, this was mostly like. 17, 18, and very early 1900s before it sort of fell out of style. Um, Basically colonial era when they were shipping everything from Egypt and other places to the European museums to show the culture of the world, you know, and consume it, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. Like, uh, sorry, seeing your work like that was just making me think even harder about it. It's like, I know this, but I, I didn't even, like put together the whole racist aspect and the consumption literal consumption of brown bodies like mm-hmm. ugh.
1: yeah it's it's hot, hard <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like um i kind of had like this breakdown being like people like literally ate my ancestors like what <laughs> you know like that is that is a, something that's well documented like this eating of this cannibalism post death but like still I'm like having lost people in my life like friends and family and being like kind of like experiencing like grief firsthand also like made me feel so horrible about the fact that like someone would ground grind up a body you know and use it for any sort of game put it in the museum like put it in their paint you know sell it um, and also I think people really um, expanded on that market and it wasn't only like mummies that they use I think they use like deceased like Egyptians you know who were just like died not long before (laughs) they ground them up and sold them to Europeans I think it's it's really disgusting
3: Um, I mean this I feel like we can get into a whole corpse desecration episode alone just on European practices like especially like the English um, medicinal colleges who were looking for bodies and how they had to basically like so
0: god white supremacy is so it's bizarre in the in the fact that like this uh belief that there is inherent uh i don't know something inherently better about being white but then it, at the same time it's like but then you they want, desire, you, need
2: to have, you need to consume everything that's
0: yeah they desire violent. like elements of non-white
2: Yeah and I mean I think what you're getting at too is it's not even just like white people participating in this right there's a whole Egyptian economy around perpetuating and appealing to that white gaze and you know we we, we sell ourselves out too.
1: And is that because of just like colonization and survival how like Egypt was colonized by like various different forces and like like I'm also recognize that my perspective is from like a mixed race Egyptian American you know Coptic person but who's like raised the United States and my livelihood does not rely on keychains you know it doesn't rely on like the selling of postcards and like giving tours of the pyramids or any of these things so like I have this like outside perspective Um, most people I talk to also have this kind of like separation you know where like I'm able to be critical because like my life doesn't depend on it.
3: I feel like it's also just a result of like a lot of the Middle East colonial history and then the later export economies of oil and tourism. As much shit as I want to give Saudi Arabia and the Emirates for their treatment of like a lot of issues, one of the few things to do right is the education of people and building up of internal resources like that. It's like, yeah, they still depend on it, but at least they're trying to escape it. Unfortunately, I... Damn, now I wish I studied this this issue a bit better for Egypt. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> I mean, it also kind of has me thinking, like, what are... Not on, like, such a literal level of, like, selling pyramid tours or, like, selling mm-hmm. bo- like physical bodies, but, like, on some level, like, how are we... How do we all sell ourselves out for the white gaze, you know? And are somewhat, like, wrapped up in that for our survival in... I'm thinking especially in the art world you
3: know side note i think i just thought of this episode's title uh white consumption
2: maybe possible it
0: describes a lot of what we're talking about on the other hand it's like do we want to sense... there's also
2: other things we're also going to yeah. talk about some and other stuff. do we want to <laughs> like
0: center white people even more by titling an episode with them anyway anyway speaking yeah. of
2: other other things um You've been involved in Yellow Punk in
1: Philly, Philly, right? Yeah. In 2021, I had a fellowship with Yellow Punk, um, building a community archive. So, yeah, I'm studying to be an archivist and studying like kind of um, institutional archiving practices and whatever that means, because archives uphold U.S. propaganda, at least in this country. I've worked at a lot of um, LGBT archives and queer swana anything is like is very very minimal um and so it's like really frustrating um because so it's like I was really excited to find out about y'all a few years ago you know because it's just like really um I think there's a lot of like more production of content made for like queer swana people uh in the last several years but um it's not really like recorded in the way that it should be not like um like white cisgendered gay men you know like it's not recorded mm-hmm. like um, I don't know, <laughs> the way that, like, mags are, you know,
3: um, uh. that's actually one of the things I think is going to be sort of big in the next, like, 10 years, at least for Queer Swana folks, is archiving all this material, like, you know, yeah, like, for example, the Queer Arabs is well, is well published and well represented on all these platforms, and we have our own website, but what about the people who do the zines or the newsletters or the locally, locally published stuff? Like, I know... Mm-hmm. A lot of Houston's queer history is preserved basically by one guy who later started a nonprofit to preserve that. And it was like all this, you know, incidental stuff like posters from drag clubs that no that existed 20 years ago or more, or like the history of a specific bar or club that was used as an AIDS um, AIDS activism point during the '80s, during the height of the uh, of that particular pandemic, and it's just. Like without that one guy doing it, all of this would be lost. And in the internet, we have this really terrible assumption that things are going to be around forever, right up until they're not, you know, um, suggestion for future archivists out there. Start or downloading right everything.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, or I guess what, what's what's kind of your approach or your definition of being an archivist that's not so centered in like white centric propagandistic ways of seeing archives?
1: yeah um so like the um, when you're like acquiring um materials into an archive like i think there's like really wonderful moments where you can like collect further like information about like the people and the object and even like how you describe like the content that you have um i think that there's like a lot of work being done on like language used to like describe things and making sure that like communities of color designate what kind of language they want to be referred to as instead of like whatever the Library of Congress or an institution like refers to say like this particular group of people of color as this when actually they like use like this kind of language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in like this community archiving project, which has been like really a whirlwind of like learning things (laughs) Um, like it's really trying to respect people and respect their choices um, and say like someone Gives me a print, you know, like I want to make sure I know exactly how they want to be described and how they want to be credited and like how they want the work to be preserved. Um, Because I feel like that influences a lot of like what I think about with like Egyptian artifacts and how like the kind of choices people made like they buried they chose how to be buried, they chose what to keep with them, you know, while they were alive, a lot of choices were made and those are not being respected now. So I think as an archivist, something that i feel is like really important is like talking to the living about how they want to be remembered and respecting that, not being like, okay, so it's 2035 and we actually want to know like more about this, we're gonna rip open these things that say restricted, you know, and actually just like really disrespect all the different kind of guidelines that people consciously made. Um, Yeah, and I think about just like respecting the living (laughs) uh, and therefore respecting the choice of the living when they're dead. Um, And I think about, honestly, I like time capsules a lot which is not what archives are really about because like archives and libraries are built to provide access to things. Um, I mean, of course, like the longevity of items is, built into like the structures of like institutions but really it is about providing access information to the public um but I think a lot about you know the fear-mongering of the last few years and like how death seems like much closer you know than I think it did for me a few years ago um Mm -hmm. and how like time capsules seem like really really safe (laughs) and so I'd love to one day you know figure out like how to get like queer swana stories and like put it in the ground so that like people know about it <laughs> you know no matter what happens to like the living
2: yeah um, I feel you I've um, I, I think I've said this on other episodes of the podcast but like just during the pandemic I had this weird impulse to just read really old things so I was like interested in reading like any kind of really old religious text or like but not because it was religious just because it was old and people still gave a fuck about it and I'm, like oh it's it, like everything seems so like like life seems so fleeting right now. It's nice to know that these people lived like thousands of years ago and someone still knows something about that and cares. Um, which I feel like is it's is coming from a similar impulse. Mm-hmm. Like I just yeah. kind of want to know that things last.
0: Yeah, things feel fragile.
1: Yeah, and I guess like I-, I can relate to that and see how like I'm trying to learn how to make things last.
0: Ellie, you mentioned like, the internet might not be reliable for forever, which you're probably right. So like, maybe we should think about that too. As pod- well, podcast
3: people. Well, a podcast only lives so long as it's being upkept by somebody. For example, um, yeah. basically we have our own web server and we drop like $30 a month on that thing just to keep it up and going. And the moment we stop paying that bill, basically the stop, the clocks the clock starts running on like how long other services like Apple, Spotify and whatnot and other all for profit services will keep the stuff up. Especially mm, no, if we point. go dormant. Good point. Like I mean, do
2: we need a, do we need to just put it on a disk? But like Have you giant...
1: decided, um have you thought about talking to an archive? Like about having them back it up as well?
2: No. Uh, but no, that's... but now we are thinking about it. you yeah. just said it. Yeah. <laughs> that's
0: <laughs> a good point. Yeah.
3: Well, I also have automated backups running on this thing like every week, just in case something happens while we're still while we still care about it. Okay. But it's, know, it's, but a, it's like, a good point, though.
0: I'll even, yeah. even, you know, whenever we aren't doing this, like, I think I and other people will still care about it. It's not about that. It's like preservation of it is important. That is something we should think about. <laughs> Yeah, um,
3: <laughs> one thing that helps is spreading it on a lot of, a lot of platforms. So we're kind of have a small leg up on that one. But it's also like, mm-hmm. where else could we stick it that's publicly accessible? Because if, yeah, if I have all of this stuff say, mm-hmm. backed up on a disk somewhere, do does anyone aside from y'all like have my phone number and can call me and say, hey, true. can you hook me up with those episodes? Yeah, true. The so, like public archives especially of the internet art should be a way more important thing but the only like major archivist organization for the internet as a whole is archive.org and mm. you can find a lot of snapshots of the older internet and a lot of old material on it but I'm not yet aware of anyone who's doing like archives of podcasts yet
0: I'm sure someone somewhere is
3: I mean um. do, do we want to go in the rabbit hole of like the problems of backing up like dense media like audio and video?
1: Yeah I guess it also yeah. depends on like where you ultimately like want to have this stuff live so say it's like in New York or in Houston or with the Arab American Museum in Dearborn you know I'm sure they can talk with you about how getting copies available on theirs in their archive as well so it won't always fall on the individual you can go talk to an archivist you know (laughs) Here we'll figure out how to get the files and um, we'll keep it safe for you and that people will be able to listen to
3: it in research context and like. A
0: great
3: idea, yeah. And check out all our edits and typos that aren't live anymore.
1: Sure. <laughs> um, I think that'd be wonderful, but like, yeah. can you imagine like in a hundred years, someone being like, you know what, queer Arab community is not actually so shiny and fun because it's like all around us, you know? And then being like, oh, wait, remember when it wasn't like that? People yeah. had to build the systems build their own communities and like actually connect with people like worldwide to like
0: yeah it's amazing how just not even four years ago when we started this like i i personally wasn't finding like queer arab stuff and all of a sudden i mean it it, just in the past few years just the change has been remarkable so i mean um... i
2: think there's two things like one like yeah there's there's so much that's bubbled up in the past few years but two like the more i've like talked to People. The more I've realized, there's there was stuff before that. It just wasn't anywhere that I would find it. Right? It wasn't Googleable. I mean, yeah. We we always talk to people who say they've been organizing something for ten years. Did I know about it ten years ago? No. Right? I think like like part of it is like you were saying. Do people want it public? I mean, I think in the past a lot of people probably didn't, and that means Mm -hmm. that it's not accessible accessible, to people and who like five years down the line are looking for it.
3: so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of kind of the other part of it is in the United States. A lot of queer stuff where like a lot of the internet hosting is was illegal or was against the law or was considered immoral. So having that sort of stuff would you know be a little sus to a lot of the major um, hosting providers back in the day, you know, come 2010, 2012, when, you know, people start, you know, coming around about queer shit, you know, the rest of the world kind of has to go that way too and has to start coming out and wanting to be open like for example there's this queer women's mailing list which has been around since like 2005 like Mm -hmm. non-googleable like the only way you could get on it is to know somebody who told you about it i can't I, i i'm still respecting the fact that i can't mention or name them or tell you how to get on to it just be just the fact that it exists somewhere on the internet But there's so much cool stuff there on that mailing list that will never be archived or be present for anyone in discussions about like what feminism means or you know job postings or people getting married and whatnot just will never show up
1: which i think is also like an important point that like things can disappear and that's a beautiful part of it too and how like there is like a desperation to you know save everything you know or like wanting to preserve everything so you don't know what it will mean to people in the future because you don't know what the future holds but also just like letting things return to the earth and letting things like be ephemeral because Nadia you're you're a dancer right yeah yeah um so I'm sure like you probably also understand like the value also like in with music too like of like ephemeral performances and like not letting them be recorded and archived or saved in any sort of way um so I think about what this like mailing list you know maybe that's also part of like yeah i don't know part of like the structure is that it will like eventually like get bit rot or whatever and like decompose over time technologically yeah
2: if you're listening to this um and a hundred years in an archive what's up up? i hope i hope things are i hope hope, things are like the planet isn't too hot yeah um (laughs) i
0: hope but we
3: hope you're hot
1: we
0: know, we, we, know, we know you're hot. We know you're hot. Yeah, Um, And yeah, I hope COVID is like a term that you're like, oh, that's old school.
1: Yeah, and hot means very attractive, you know? Oh,
0: <laughs> like, yeah. Going back to Yellow Punk, I guess what has your experience been with Yellow Punk? The festival can't happen, but like, I know there are so many other projects.
1: Working with Yellow Punk has been really wonderful because like... Kind of really respects how like this world is kicking all of our like asses you know like how it's just been like really running running people down so there's been like the kind of capitalist like sense of urgency and like deadlines and stuff like that is not um embedded into like, the structure of, like the fellowship you know um yeah. like so i there was me and three other fellows um who we're all doing like really cool projects um one person is starting up a a talk show specifically for like queer people um and they're doing like an open call right now i think for acts
2: for
1: that. yeah that's alyssa right yeah alyssa is yeah. doing that um another person is uh, a designer a cartoonist who redesigns like yellow punk's logos working on some merch and hopefully putting on a book fair and another person um was working on the community kitchen where they were making meals for uh just different um, places in Philadelphia every two weeks and like making some like really delicious uh, sauna food. And um, we had a few events where we were just like kind of tabling places, talking about Yellow Punk. Um, and I've been like working with different volunteers on like gathering materials for the Yellow Punk Community Archive, which also uh, yeah, prioritizes kind of like queer sauna voices in the diaspora are people who have like connections to Yellow Punk. various different ways um which is cool because we have like a lot of photographs from previous fests and photographs from artists we have like um stuff from oh my gosh we have this like really wild like like oh my gosh ep (laughs) that came in like this old um like vcr case uh from a band out in california and we have just like some records and um some interviews from other orgs and and some publications which is which is really cool i'm kind of like really figuring out like what the next steps are but also i feel like a lot of queer archives or archives that are like for people of color community archives um have lived in people's basements like forever like there's this one really incredible archive out in the midwest called like the carter johnson um archive which is like a a bdsm leather archive um and it literally like it's like a super amazing like kind of archive that lives in this person's house or like lived there for a long time and she would just like put it in the back of her like her minivan and like drive it to different like leather conferences or um fests i don't know like but just thinking about how like communities whose work is um I don't know. Was considered illegal or taboo, or for whatever reason, you know, it's not like something that Harvard wants to hold or whatever. It can be like it's really often like cl- kept in like domestic spaces. Like the lesbian herstory archives was kept in an apartment in New York for years um, before they had more money to like build out the space or like move it to somewhere as it expanded. Um, yeah. So right now it's in my house in this room. <laughs> so I have some stuff um, and I'm like working on. Kind of like organizing the like, kind of like acquisition process. Um, the timeline for when it will be available is like up in the air right now. We're like, I'm um, still working on collecting things. I'm working at um, an LGBT archive here in Philadelphia, and so I'm working with like a someone who has worked as an archivist for 20 years. Who's <laughs> like really been helping me like figure out uh, the ins and outs of yeah, what it means to build an archive. But it's been awesome. I think that Yellow Punk has brought, brought, brought a lot of cool stuff to Philadelphia, um, and there's a lot of like, really, really amazing people who I've met through Yellow Punk. Um, and I wish that uh, COVID would chill out so that there could be another fest, because oh, I still don't no. want yeah. um,
0: For the listeners, uh, if you haven't heard about Yellow Punk, you can hear our episode
2: 80. I sure you like, if you haven't heard about COVID.
0: If you haven't heard yeah. about
2: COVID, <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: just yeah. look it up um episode 80 was our last one on yellow punk if you want to check it out that was from the festival yeah, which i
2: think was yeah. the
0: last time it happened in person yeah it was 2019 yeah yeah it's
1: 100 episodes ago i know wow you're all been busy
2: god i like i can't tell <laughs> i mean
0: it's a lot of episodes ago so yeah. i guess so yeah Yeah. So anything else that you kind of have on the horizon that you're working on that you want to mention?
1: I have a few artist talks coming up this month in January, but they may be like moved around because of COVID. (laughs) So I know, actually, I have the one date might be the 22nd at Automat in Philadelphia, January 22nd. That's right. But You can check out my Instagram just in case it's postponed because I honestly don't know. Really cool part of being an artist. Uh,
0: (laughs) Every so much right now is play it by ear. I was like all set up until the day before this orchestra concert. We had like practice like 20, 20 hours or something like that in total for our concert and it was canceled. That was last month and it's like, obviously we all understood and we thought that was the smart decision but just everything just feels
2: i'm even sad that i didn't get to go to it after all that yeah
0: i it. just
2: like everything i guess um uh do you feel like as primarily a visual artist that the pandemic has had because i know it's Mm -hmm. like obliterated the performing arts not to be negative um but mm-hmm. in visual arts, do you feel like it's had the same kind of effect or not so much? Because I feel like in some ways it's it still prevents people from like being in person and experiencing the art. But on the other hand, you could still have your process going on a little more easily.
1: Prior to the pandemic, I think I did more, like, social practice work. So, I'd host, like, workshops and actual events and, like, talk to people. And that was, like, the part of my practice that was, like, most exciting. Um, and I think, like, during the mm-hmm. pandemic, I did not make work for, like, the first year, year and a half. Or, like, I wasn't yeah. really, like, making stuff. I would, like,
0: yeah
1: do stuff, like, here and there. But it wasn't, like, the same kind of, like, I'm excited and I'm, like, driven and I right. have ideas that I want to share. So, I think that, like... The pandemic has encouraged like a shift in my practice and also i feel like <clears throat> it's like a lot of people like their personal relationships probably change and i think moving to a new city like meeting uh different people like losing friends gaining friends um has kind of like encouraged me to work by myself a lot of my practice was like working with like partners and like um mm-hmm. Uh, with other people on things so that's just like not really in the cards <laughs> right now it's like yeah. me and my dog my girlfriend most of the time and it's like yeah. yeah so I'm like working by myself working through my stuff with my paintbrush and you know
2: <laughs> yeah. I-, I kind of felt that way too I ended up doing a lot of solo work because that was what we were allowed to do and on one level I'm like it was very like introspective and yeah, introspective, Learned some things about myself, but also I kind of reached a prone of burnout of like, I cannot be introspective anymore. I cannot learn anything more about myself. I actually don't want to be in my own company. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I know, I'm tired of myself. I'd like to learn about yes. anyone else.
3: Oh my god, I'm, I'm tired of being an introvert already. Let me go out, please.
0: Yeah, oh. yeah I know. Even all the introverts are like, I'm so, so And This <laughs> isn't what I meant. Yeah,
2: this is this is not what i asked for Good. so yeah where can um where can people follow you or find you
1: my instagram is at meatspace 2000 you have had that username for a long time
2: <laughs>
1: yeah i love that oh, yeah oh something i wanted to mention earlier that i'm also capricorn and i was listening to their <gasps> podcast and oh! i was like wow overload
0: yes wow. Oh, my God. Okay, so three of the four of us here are Capricorns, then. I'm an ally to Capricorns. Yeah. yeah. Nad- <laughs> Nadia's, ha- Nadia's half birthday is in Capricorn season. So yeah. There we go. Amazing. We, ha- we have a Cancer and three Capricorns here. That's awesome. Wait, wait, what day is your birthday? January 10th. Oh, cool. Yours is first, and Ellie, than me. We have ten- <laughs> the 10th, the 11th for Ellie, and I'm the 18th. Sweet.
1: January, big month. (laughs) Another year in COVID. Another birthday in COVID.
3: Oh, God.
0: (laughs) Second birthday in COVID, yeah, for us.
2: Right?
3: Or is it third? Yeah.
2: No, second.
0: No, we're on three. No, no. Uh, Well, it depends if you
2: count the first year where there was COVID, but there wasn't a shutdown.
0: Yeah, because January 2020, Like
2: 2020, like in retrospect, that was part of a pandemic but in yeah we think we were in a pandemic then not exactly true
3: yeah Mm -hmm. we're like
1: hearing about it we were like what's this what is this virus thing
2: like i remember even
0: at around that time we did an episode like i think it was around january and during the episode we were like oh why are people freaking out about this virus and then well, I'm that's
2: like, embarrassing. I
0: know. <laughs> we then, take like, that down <laughs> I know. And then t- two months later, I'm like, well,
1: <laughs> God. Have, have you got COVID yet?
0: Yeah. Nadia and I yeah. got it together because we lived together yeah. at the time. Um, so
2: October 2020. October 2020. Yeah.
0: Um, good times. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. What about you? I somehow, Do not I've somehow avoided it that's yeah. amazing I, how about you caitlin
1: i haven't gotten it yet
0: oh so. good
1: yeah yeah oh, I just I... Got my booster, so
0: good okay i have my <sighs> booster and vaccines nadia and i got it before the vaccines so hopefully if yeah. this happens again it'll be
2: mild I'm trying not to get it but same so is everybody yeah well not except everyone. everyone except the people not who aren't everyone. trying that hard um but yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah i was yeah. like it's so weird talking to people without masks on
0: <laughs> oh my god i saw this TikTok where someone's boss sent an email out saying everyone on zoom must wear a mask because one person was like triggered seeing unmasked faces <laughs> so, what? That, what? i know <laughs> like we're that deep in that people are getting that kind, well, of, like, trauma, I am that kind of, of trauma, that kind of trauma, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> god, anyway, yeah. it's nice to see everyone's unmasked faces on this zoom call, <laughs> thank you so, thank you for coming yeah. on, this was really cool to revisit,
1: oh, well, congratulations for keeping this project going for so many years, I'm so thank grateful you. to be able to like, revisit, because I was a, such a little baby gay, you know, I was right? like, oh, yeah. oh um am I gonna die or like and I'm just like here yeah, I am I have a dog now so
2: Mood.
0: things yeah. have
1: like really progressed in yeah. my world first off, yeah that's so.
2: the that's like the sequence first you're afraid you're gonna die and then you grow up and get a dog yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> now we have
0: other Those reasons. Are the life stages <laughs> yeah and now we just have different reasons for being afraid to die but like it's not that at least yeah not as yeah much of that. Um, yeah, I know. At the beginning of the podcast, I was so afraid of like my identity getting out there, and now I'm, I don't feel that. So
2: a lot has changed. You can follow us at the Queer Arabs on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and you can find us at thequeerarabs.com. If you want to talk to us, you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. And yeah, that's it. I finished it like a question, but it wasn't a question. <laughs>